0: Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawpox. In this week's edition of Insight, we're coming to you from our secret underground lair beneath an extinct volcano, in high-backed leather chairs, and wearing futuristic outfits that look like they're made of alfoil. It's time to start worrying. Not only is June 30 just around the corner, but those pesky European supervillains, Swiss Re, are at it again with their dangerously titled Sonar Report. Donning our tuxedos, we then climb into our modified 1996 Toyota Corolla and head underwater to check out the latest mishaps of the cyclone reinsurance pool. And while cocktail shakers everywhere are rolling their eyes, we like our code of practice shaken, not stirred. Hello, everyone. In this week's very downtrodden episode, I'm joined by editor John Deeks, senior journalist Benice Han, and welcome back. Chairman Terry McMullen. Good morning. Is it good to be back,
1: Terry? Oh, lovely to be back, Andrew. <laughs> it's it's lovely to be back in the world of the living, yes. Excellent, excellent. Hello, John.
0: Hi. Do you think Terry's a dead ringer for a Bond supervillain? <laughs> yeah, he's got more hair than Dr No, I guess. <laughs> nice <laughs> device for not answering the question. Good morning, Bernice. Morning. Maybe I should ask you if Terry would be better as a sidekick.
2: Oh, uh, Perhaps. <laughs>
0: Well, staying with you, Benice, Switzerland's Sona report on emerging risks is out. Tell us what else we need to start worrying about.
2: Uh the next pandemic is one, or rather, preparations for the next and future pandemics. Touring permafrost as climate change accelerates is another. Crypto assets such as non-fungible tokens for Picasso art pieces is also something to are uh, also something to watch out for. The Sonar report lists 14 emerging risks looming on the horizon of immediate relevance to Australian insurers is the ongoing construction materials shortages. So um, Swiss is saying that the price rises arising from the situation can actually lead to unexpectedly severe claims, uh, particularly in the long tail businesses, um, multi-year policies and non-proportional contract features. Raw material scarcities and price pressures may see builders cut corners leading to lower construction quality. And what this means is it could lead to higher claims in property and professional indemnity. So it's a pretty scary report if I were to get it from a pessimistic point of view.
1: (laughs) Well, look, some of
0: those are risks, but some also sound like opportunities, Terry.
2: Well,
1: yeah. A a famous insurance executive named Rodney Adler once told me that great rewards can be made in times of adversity, but... As he went to jail a couple of years later, I'd also note you should look both ways before crossing the road. We're playing an unknown territory with many of the risks Swiss Re is, is focused on this time around. And I mean really unknown territory. Economies bent out of shape by a war that's causing big rises in the costs of fossil fuels, which are the dominant cause of climate change, which is melting the permafrost, which could release previously frozen pathogens into the atmosphere. So let's all get ready for the next pandemic. As Bernice says, it's scary stuff. I also noted in this report that technology risks are becoming more and more esoteric crypto problems, non-fungible tokens, which are apparently either a risk or an opportunity depending on the day of the week. So yes, we're in the risk business, but as cyber insurance has already shown us, you really need to understand the risk from all angles to make money out of it. So uh, I've looked back at some of the old Sonar reports, so congratulations to Swiss Re, which I've realized has been pretty much on target with its predictions ever since the sonar reports started and uh 2013.
0: Well, I feel almost too depressed to carry on the podcast. So, uh, John, isn't the Cyclone reinsurance pool due to be rolled out on July 1? Yes,
3: that's right. But as we're fast realising, that doesn't mean savings will be winging their way to consumers anytime soon. The commencement date was July the 1st. And as far as we know, that's still the case. But all that means is that the pool will be set up and available for insurers to join from that date. The reality is they probably won't join the pool for a while yet. Uh, large insurers have until December next year to have all eligible policies transferred into the pool, while small insurers have until the end of 2024. I'm not getting the impression that insurers are gonna be rushing to join this scheme. It'll be a complicated process for them to renegotiate reinsurance contracts, because, of course, they will still need private reinsurance outside of cyclone risks. You could argue that if an insurer joined the scheme quickly, it would give them a competitive edge as they'd be able to pass on the savings more quickly than others. But then again, there's still widespread scepticism about what those savings will actually amount to given the fact that the scheme aims to be cost neutral to the government. The previous federal government touted savings of up to 46% for homeowners, as we know. But I understand that insurers have seen draft rates, and there's a feeling that there's no way we're getting to anything like 46%.
0: Well, it's already starting to look a little shallow, isn't it, Terry? Will
1: it live up to the previous government's hype? Look, I, I don't think many people in the industry have worked on this pool concept, really see it living up to the sort of hype that the previous government attached to it. No one outside Treasury seems to have seen the the detailed calculations on, on which it's based. So there's every possibility that while it will provide some additional security after an extreme event, we really don't yet know how it's going to materially affect premiums. We're just going to have to wait and see the Treasury figures. But as things stand right now, nobody has any faith in the uh, the concept at all right now. Well,
0: John, there was an article this week that shed some light on how insurers are adapting to the new Code of Practice. I didn't read it, but can you enlighten me?
1: Yes, I can. So
3: the Code Governments Committee uh, released a report and there were some, some, some quite worrying findings, I guess, in terms of compliance with the Code. We should point out that this review focused on quite a narrow range of obligations in the code, which were all related to public facing obligations. So that means information that the insurers are obliged to include on their websites to give the public vital information about the industry and this includes things like target market determinations access to home building some insured calculators information about financial hardship and the support available avenues for complaints and information about the code itself now this review surveyed 14 insurers and found that only four of them had complied with all five of these public-facing obligations. Now, it was the smaller insurers that struggled the most to get this information up on their websites in time, and I guess you can understand that. And the committee also said that they understood that there was an awful lot of regulatory change going through around the time that these deadlines were, were coming into force. So, yeah, there, were, there are some excuses, but when you think that, that this was within the insurers' control, that they, they had to just upload this information to their websites to inform the public, I guess it is disappointing that so many of them failed to do it.
0: Well, even I can tell that isn't great. Uh, it's
1: all very well having a shiny new code, but it's no good if subscribers don't comply with it, Terry. Yeah, that's right, Andrew. The, the, the code relies on companies and individuals within the companies respecting the code and following the rules it outlines. But I think the bitter experience has shown us that it takes time for companies to both give it the priority it needs and also to to get awareness of the new code spread right throughout every layer of the company. It's hard work. There's always going to be individuals in in customer-facing roles who, who push the boundaries from time to time. And most of the breaches we've seen over the years seem to come down to not understanding the rules or, or letting old habits creep back in. In this instance, it, it really seems to me a case of companies just being very, very slow in getting the... Uh, commitments they've made into line and, and and done. It's a living code and people and companies really have been shown in the past to be very slow to adapt to new ways of doing things. Well, commissions are always a hot topic for
0: brokers, but also on the life side, Bernice. What does the life industry had to say about the upcoming quality of advice review?
2: The life industry is very clear about how it feels when it comes to the remuneration model. So the Association of Financial Advisors, or AFA, in its review says banning life commission would lead to destructive consequences. Um, since survey after survey has shown that consumers asked if they will pay an upfront fee or commission, most have opted for commission. So the AFA says removing the remaining exemptions from the ban on conflicted remuneration is not the answer. Um, doing so will only deter more Australians from getting financial advice to plan properly for their life insurance needs. And the Financial Planning Association has also made a submission, says the industry and government need to Come together to address the quagmire that has been created by complex, overlapping, and contradictory regulations, codes, and rules that now govern the provision of financial advice. According to the FPA, financial planners now spend more time filling out forms than helping their clients plan for their life insurance needs. So that's the uh, summary of their very detailed submissions to be reviewed.
0: I feel like I've heard some of those arguments before, John. There are some obvious parallels here with the uh, Niebuhr view, aren't there?
3: Very much so. I mean, uh, there are differences too. I think I think Niebuhr likes to point out that commissions on the life side are generally higher than the general insurance side. But yes, you're right. There's a lot of similarities in these arguments. Um, basically, they surround the fact that Consumers don't want to pay a fee, so therefore the fee model won't work. You know, if consumers are forced to pay a fee for advice, then they'll try and avoid it. So that means there'll be less people accessing the advice that they so desperately need, and that 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 accounts for insurance brokers, but also financial advisors. So, yeah, very similar arguments. There's also a similarity in the submissions where they both say that taking away commissions won't necessarily lead to cheaper premiums and both give examples in the past where where that just hasn't happened
0: well finally let's talk about nti's latest truck raffle john they've raised over 1 million dollars with these raffles haven't they
3: they have and that's a staggering amount of money really when when you think about it nti is very committed to raising funds for motor neuron disease research and uh, as most readers and listeners will know they've they've raffled a series of vintage trucks that they've sort of breathed new life into and they're really quite fancy some of these vehicles and the latest one which you can still buy a ticket for i believe is it's not just a truck it's got a motorhome attached to it as well so it's like a luxury motorhome that that sleeps five people it's got a kitchenette, air conditioning indoor and outdoor showers it it really sounds like something i'd quite like to have to be honest but yeah this truck this particular truck is valued at $265,000 and you can buy, you can still buy a ticket for that draw.
0: It's uh, a bit better than our 1996 Toyota Corolla, isn't it,
1: Terry? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a bit bit sort of disturbed by the fact that we're actually promoting this NTI raffle at all. I've, I've bought a swag of tickets and I really want to win this one. Tony Clark and, and his crew at NTI deserve applause for their innovative approach to to fundraising, and it's such a worthy cause they're supporting. So yes, folks, buy as many tickets as you want, but just remember you can't win because I want it. On that slightly
0: more upbeat note, maybe, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Bernice Han, and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all of these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.